Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 323, Athelred, Brotherhood of the Wolf. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to James, Erica, and Brad for signing up already. And we're back. Thank you very much for being patient while the BHP went on a brief parental leave. And speaking of things that are back, the Dowager Queen Ailthrith has returned to the King's Inner Council following what looks like a political coup against Ilfrich of Hampshire and his faction. And just because it was political doesn't mean it was bloodless. All of Elfridge's allies were dead. Only Elfridge himself, who appears to have been too big to fail, remained as the sole surviving member of the faction. But while this was a horrible development for Elfridge and his friends, it's possible that the rest of England was breathing a sigh of relief. The Dowager Queen Ilthrith, Elderman Athelweird, Elderman Ordwolf, and the rest of the team had been in politics since pretty much forever. And this time around, they also had the backing of a powerful Mercian dynasty. So they were well positioned. Now, were they perfect? No. Were they reformers looking to root out corruption from the system? God, no. But were they familiar with the gears and levers that kept the English ship of state running? Yes. Or at least more so than Elfrich and his friends appear to have been. And we can see the benefits of their return to power almost immediately. Through a careful use of diplomacy and Danegelds, this group managed to exploit a rift between Swain Forkbeard and Olaf Tryggvason. These were two Scandinavian leaders that had teamed up just months before to terrorize England. But before you could say Vent Liet, Olaf was on his way back to Norway, looking to press his claim for the throne against his former ally Swain, and in response, Swain Forkbeard was forced to halt his raiding campaign and go handle the revolt. So now all of his energies were going towards gathering allies and attempting to hold off the Norse fury that Olaf was directing towards Denmark. And as a bonus, England also gained a number of Scandinavian mercenaries out of the deal, including a man named Palig, who might have been the brother-in-law of Forkbeard himself. All in all... Things were looking up now that Mom, Uncle Lord Wolf, and Cousin Athelweird were back in court. But despite the increase in competence, the cultural rot that was sitting at the center of the English system remained. And we see evidence of that in the following year. In 995, we read of a dispute that was such a mess that it even got brought before King Athelred himself. It begins with three brothers in Essex. Elfnoth, Elfrich, a different Elfrich, and Athelwinna. And as their noble names suggest, these were men of means, and they jointly held an estate and had a staff of servants who tended to their needs and desires. And these people would have tended the fields, they'd handle the upkeep of the property, and they generally did whatever else was required of them. And on one particular day, one of these servants received a strange request he was told to retrieve a particular bridal. But he wasn't given any money to pay for it. It was a tricky situation. However, servants aren't there to ask questions, so this servant went out and got the bridal. 
and he brought it back to his master. And that might have been the end of the story, but bridles are utilitarian objects. They get regular use. And to have the benefit of a bridle, you would actually need to put it on one of your horses. So it wasn't too long before the owner noticed that his bridle had been stolen. And I'm sure he also noticed that that missing bridle was now on one of the brother's horses. So he brought it to the attention of the authorities. And in this case, it was brought to two royal reeves, Reeve Athelwig of Oxford and Reeve Winsiga of Buckingham, which meant that the crown was now involved in this. And it's around this point that I imagine the thieves started to sweat because theft during this era carried a penalty of mutilation and scalping. So if these brothers were caught stealing, they would just about be guaranteed a grisly death. And unfortunately for them, they were in possession of the bridle, and it didn't take long for the Reeves to figure that out. And knowing what was in store for the accused, things between the brothers escalated rapidly, and soon they turned on each other. Weapons were drawn, and in the fighting, Elfnoth and Elfrich were killed. Only Athelwina and the servant who stole the bridle survived the exchange. And together, they fled to St. Helen's Church at Abingdon. But curiously, rather than pursuing Athelwina, instead, Reeves Athelwig and Winsiga paused and decided to give Elfnoth and Elfrich Christian burials. And that is a rather nice gesture, given the belief that such a burial was required in order to get into heaven. But here's the thing about it. It was actually in direct violation of the law at this point. Thieves were not intended to get into heaven. So why did the Reeves do this? Even more strangely, the Reeves also defended Athelwina against the allegations of theft. And they did so despite the fact that the bridle was found in his possession and the fact that he fled alongside the servant who carried out the actual theft. It was a shocking move. And it was a series of events that suggested that there was a lot more to the story. It was so suggestive, in fact, that the local elderman of Essex, a man named Leofsiga, rode to court and brought the matter directly to the king. The elderman informed the king that the Reeves had improperly given the brothers Christian burials, and that the living brother had essentially gotten away with theft. And these were damning accusations for any of the king's subjects, but for the Reeves, this was an incredible dereliction of duty. And the record here doesn't describe what, if anything, the two Reeves were getting out of this strange protection of obvious thieves. But if you remember back to earlier episodes, being a king's Reeve was an incredible opportunity to uh, monetize justice. So if I had to guess, and I do, I suspect that the living brother, Athelwina, had bribed the Reeves in some way in order to protect himself from justice and maybe secure a place in heaven for his brothers. Another possibility is that Reeve Athelwig, for reasons that will become clear, might have actually been a relative of the three noble brothers. And out of clan loyalty, maybe he decided to just let the whole matter slide. That could explain why an elderman would have gone to the trouble of bringing this situation before the king, especially if that elderman was interested in justice. And Elderman Leofsiga does appear to have been interested in justice, because he laid it all out before the king. The fact that the stolen goods were found in the brother's possession, the fact that the thief was their servant, the fact that all three had turned on each other when they were caught, the fact that the surviving brother and the thief fled together. 
He laid it all out. And taken together, it's a pretty damning story, and certainly worthy of being denied Christian burials and being tried for theft. So for Athelred, the path of justice was clear. But Athelred didn't tread the path of justice. He tread the path of politics. And on the path of politics, this problem wasn't just a simple matter of digging up some corpses and trying Athelwina. There were important people who were involved. And there were volatile factions that needed to be appeased. The most immediate problem that faced Athelred was that if he, the king, sided with Elderman Lay of Siga, even though he would be siding with an Elderman who was a very powerful noble in this system, he would also be condemning his reeves and accusing them of miscarrying justice. Which, obviously, they had. But that isn't what Athelred was worried about. You see, reeves weren't just officers. They were often trusted members of the king's inner circle. They were the people that the king wanted to keep close. They were possibly even his friends. Furthermore, Reeve Athelwig had a name that was very similar to the three noble brothers. And the charters indicate that he had an emotional stake in this case. So again, it's possible that he was part of their same clan. And to make a move against this Reeve, well, it might cause the whole clan to turn against you. So the path of politics wasn't clear. But then again, the king's oath of office specifically dictated that he had to prosecute theft. So what was an image-conscious king to do here? Did he side with justice and the rule of law and establish that anyone, regardless of whether or not they are friends with the king, would be treated equally by the court? Did he establish that no one could betray the state, which is essentially what the Reeves did, without facing serious consequences? Did he set down a marker that said the crime wave and the rank corruption that were the hallmark of his reign thus far would finally come to an end, and that enforcement would no longer be capriciously applied? Well, he could have done those things, but if he did, he wouldn't have been Athelred. Instead, the king declared that he didn't wish to sadden Reeve Athelwig, because he was dear and precious to him, and so he would allow the brothers to remain interred. Furthermore, he determined that the brothers had forfeited their right to their lands in Ardley in Oxfordshire, and thus those lands could not be passed down to their heirs, nor would they go to Elderman Leofsiga, nor to the owner of the bridal. Instead, those lands would go to Reeve Athelwig, presumably as an apology for the inconvenience of being caught red-handed. So yeah, the king's friend wasn't just avoiding punishment, he was getting rewarded with an estate provided to him by the crown itself. So, why tell you this story? I mean, ultimately, this is just a minor theft that was carried out by lesser nobles, and the estate that was transferred to the Reeve wasn't all that important. And on the scale of things, it's a pretty minor matter, and it's probably why you've never heard it explained to you in a posh voice on the BBC. But I share it with you now because I think this theft is important for understanding the reign of Athelred. Because even though it's a small moment with limited consequences, it demonstrates just how the kingdom was being run at this moment in time. Even with small matters, with minor allies, the king's personal friendships were outweighing rank, they were outweighing justice, and they were even outweighing his sacred oaths. This event... While it is just a minor property dispute within a land grant, 
is an important window into the culture of corruption that sat at the core of Athelred's reign. And it was a culture that existed independently of who his inner council was. The return of the old guard was only able to do so much, and this abject failure to fairly dispense justice is the most consistent aspect of King Athelred's time on the throne. And the thing about grift, the thing about running a corrupt house where you give your buddies gifts through shady means, is that once you start, you can't stop. The spice must flow. Other people in your circle will start to want similar handouts. And you better give them handouts, otherwise they might turn on you. And wouldn't you know it? On that same year, we see another charter involving an influential member of the king's council. Wolfrich Spot, and he's confirmed as the master of Dumbledon in Gloucestershire. And I'm sure that timing was a complete coincidence. But while Athelred was handing out the kingdom in gift bags, Olaf Tryggvason was in Scandinavia, declaring himself king of Norway. And while Swain Forkbeard did have some thoughts on the matter, that fight for Norway was on. And that was just one of the major political shifts that were happening on the world stage while England was devolving into a kleptocracy. The world kept turning, and the corruption at the heart of England kept going. Because like I said, grift is very hard to stop. It can function like an addiction. You start with one or two bribes, and they might have been used initially for a reasonable purpose. A genuine emergency for which that was the only solution available. And it did make things easier for a while. So much so that when something similar, though less severe, came along, it was the go-to solution. And then, and then it happened again. And then again. Until eventually, it wasn't being used for emergencies. It was just a day-to-day thing. And then at some point, it stops being a solution One day, you wake up and realize that this thing that was once useful to solve a problem had become a problem itself. In fact, you find you can't live without it. It's become necessary just to keep going. Even worse, trying to shake it now would cause far more pain and disruption than the initial emergency would have caused in the first place had you never turned to this thing. So this one-time solution is now all-consuming and threatens to devour everything. That's grift. And here we are, in 995, and England has progressed from having a Viking-related sports injury and passed through the phase where it told itself it was just managing chronic dynastic pain, and now it was on the fast path to becoming a full-blown corruption junkie. And that didn't just hit the kingdom in the wallet it began to have a debilitating effect on the very power of the crown itself. And the evidence for that, too, can be found in the charters. And this story, like all the problems that come to a head during the reign of Athelred, actually begins much farther back. This time, with the death of King Athelred's father, King Edgar the Peaceable. As you might remember, King Edgar had three consorts. Well, at least three that we're aware of. And one of them was a nun named Wolfthrith. And even the most charitable reading of that story indicates a tricky situation. But things got even trickier after Edgar died, because we're told that sometime after his death, a man named Wolfbald rode to Wolfthrith's estate and, quote, seized everything there he found, inside and outside, great and small, 
end quote. You know the phrase, he stole everything that wasn't nailed down? Well, Wolfbald even took the stuff that was nailed down. And the reason for this might be as obvious as it looks. I mean, who doesn't want free stuff? But Wolfbald's name might give a hint to another motivation. Anglo-Saxon naming conventions, particularly in Mercia, sometimes indicate a dynastic connection. And in this case, it might mean that Wolfbald was a relative of Wolfthrith. It's possible he was a cousin, or maybe even a brother. And in such a circumstance, you could imagine that Wolfbald felt he had the right to inherit, and that that property should be his, rather than being passed down to Wolfthrith's stepson, King Athelred. It's not recorded, so we can't know for sure, but it is suggestive. But one thing we do know is that some dude had just ridden into the king's stepmother's estate and taken all her shit. And that's a bold move. And as you can imagine, the king responded to it immediately. And he demanded that Wolfbald return or repay all the stolen goods. And a messenger was sent with these demands. And upon meeting with Wolfbald, the messenger was summarily dismissed. Wolfbald was not interested in king's degrees. And instead, he just went on doing, I don't know, Wolfbald stuff. But defying a royal decree is a big deal. And so the king was granted a guild, which Wolfbald was now obligated to pay to the crown, in addition to being required to return the stolen property. So, another messenger was sent, notifying Wolfbald of his legal situation. And Wolfbald just didn't care. He just kept enjoying all the things he'd taken, as if he didn't have a care in the world. So a second guild was assessed against Wolfbald. Double guild detention. But did that bother Wolfbald? F*** no. Instead, he decided to demonstrate how little he cared for this king's justice by saddling up, presumably with a posse, and riding to Braborn, where he seized some lands belonging to his own kinsman, a man named Britmar. This dude wasn't bothered by the law, he wasn't bothered by the king, he wasn't even bothered by family ties. So yet again, word of these crimes were brought before the king's court. And the king sent another messenger, telling him that he had to vacate the lands and pay his damn fines and return the stolen property. But Wolfbald said he was quite comfortable right here in Braborn, thank you very much. In fact, so was his wife and son. They were all very happy, and so they wouldn't be leaving anytime soon. So a third guild was assessed, which Wolfbald ignored again. And the king realized that something would have to be done about this. This was getting entirely out of hand. He was spitting in the face of the crown. Athelred knew he had to act decisively. And so... He sent a messenger telling him that he had to pay those fines and that he really must give those lands back and that the king really did mean it this time. And Wolfbald assured the messenger that he understood the king's position on the matter, but he would have to decline. And faced with so many clear indications that these wear guilds weren't working, King Athelred did the only thing he could think of. He issued a fourth wear guild and sent a messenger. And this time, Wolfbald ignored it. Again. But finally, the council took note of this fiasco. And not the Privy Council. 
No, instead the full Watanagamot, consisting of all the king's counselors, both secular and ecclesiastical, came together and met in 990 at London. And they discussed the issue of Wolfbald. And the Witan decided to publicly denounce Wolfbald, which I'm sure he did not care about at all. But they also declared that all of his property was now the property of the king. Not only that, but they gave the king their express permission to kill Wolfbald if he wanted to. They did everything but declare him an outlaw at this point. And I'm sure that after this decision was made, a messenger was sent to Wolfbald to tell him of the Witan's decision. And guess what Wolfbald did in response? He kept living his life as normal. Because Wolfbald figured out something that the rest of England was apparently slow to discover. The kingdom, and honestly most nations in general, largely operate on two things. Norms and the enforcement of those norms. So if the crown couldn't or wouldn't enforce those norms, and if Wolfbald didn't care if everyone was clucking their tongues at him, well, then he could do pretty much whatever he wanted. Because even though the king had reeves and warbands and a frigging army, there was something about Wolfbald that made the king reluctant to move directly against him. So despite the fact that all of the most powerful nobles of England said that he had a death warrant hanging over his head and that all of his property now belonged to the king, Wolfbald just kept living on his enormous estates along with his wife and son. And he continued to do so for the rest of his life. Now, eventually, Wolfbald died of natural causes at around 995 or 996. And when this happened, word of Wolfbald's passing reached the court. And one of his cousins, a king's thane named Edmer, was sent to recover the lands. And Edmer wasn't stupid. He clearly knew who and what his cousin was. So just in case he was met with any resistance, thane Edmer brought a posse with him. And good thing, too, as Edmer's posse were immediately met by Wolfbald's widow, his son, and I presume, what remained of Wolfbald's retinue. And Edmer, along with 15 of his companions, were killed. It appears that Wolfbald had more than just farmers staying with him on these estates. However, despite racking up an impressive body count, Wolfbald's widow and son were either captured or killed because they vanished from the record. And so finally, at around year 996, King Athelred acquired the lands at Braborn, Evegate, Nackington, Chalk, and a place called Weringen, which was probably Perry. It was a sizable collection of estates. And if this was a year or two earlier, they might have gone to Elfrich or one of his friends. But Elfrich's faction had been defanged, and a new sheriff was in town. So all of those lands were instead given to a prominent member of the new council, the king's mother, the dowager queen, Elfthrith. So yep, there's that grift again. Lands that had belonged to the king's stepmother were being granted to the king's own mother. And that grant was happening right after her faction seized power. So it's not hard to see what was going on here. But under the obvious corruption is also a clear marker of weakness as well. The king had four ware guilds, a death warrant, and a grant of all the property by the Witan. And even then, he didn't dare move against Wolfbald. 
And after Wolfball died of natural causes, his widow and son still managed to kill 16 servants of the crown before they lost their grip on the properties. It's hard to overstate how weak the crown was under Athelred. And the corruption that sat at the heart of his reign was one of the main sources of that weakness. Athelred had to keep chasing that dragon. And doing so was putting him in positions where his own subjects were rebelling against him. Oh, and speaking about feeding that habit, Ilfrith wasn't the only member of the King's Inner Council that was getting fabulous cash and prizes in 996. Wolfrich Spot, the powerful noble who likely controlled most of the Midlands, was given lands at Bromley in Staffordshire. And at that same point, there's also a new figure who appears in the record, and he was given the powerful Bishopric of London. And we don't know what this guy's lineage was, but we do know he was a political powerhouse. Right from day one, there were only three people who were ranked higher than him on the witness lists. He was only outranked by the king and the two archbishops. Everyone else was beneath him. And while we don't know what his family lineage was, his name just happens to match the naming convention of other powerful nobles that we've heard of. Nobles like Wolfbald, Wolfrich, son of Wolfrun, and Nun Wolfthrith. His name was Wolfstan. And while he is the Bishop of London now, he had far grander ambitions. Meanwhile, across the Channel, Duke Richard of Normandy, Athelred's rival and the ally of many of England's enemies, had just died, and the duchy passed to his eldest son, Richard II. And Richard II was still a child. Moreover, he was facing off with a discontent peasant population, and a child ruler with internal problems was exactly the opportunity that England needed to clip the wings of its rival. But England was too busy feeding its habit to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. So Duke Richard II was largely left alone. But hey, at least Wolfren's lines seem to be doing pretty well out of this. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, all over the place, really. And you can find links to all of our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I